It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, it looks like it's game, set, match for Australia against Djokovic in this increasingly bizarre battle. You know, Novak Djokovic sometimes seems unbeatable on the tennis court, but here it's pretty clear he defeated himself. I have a lot more to say on this podcast on this Friday. Uh, you know, it seems like every single story that I'm tracking for Media Buzz on Sunday morning, and I hope you'll have a chance to watch, is as has a bunch of moving targets, constantly evolving, which means a lot of work on Friday to try to keep current. I mean, everything from January 6th investigation to tennis uh, to Supreme Court rulings, we will get to it all here. In fact, I've got so much stuff. I'll probably just talk twice as fast so we can get more in. You know, I guess when you listen to an audiobook, you can speed it up. And so uh, to make it more quick, but I think maybe uh, a nice, gentle pacing, kind of soothing to the ear would would probably be preferable, right? All right. Uh, This is a great item heading into the weekend. Interest in non-alcoholic beer, wine, and spirits has been soaring. Axios informs us that companies, big companies, small companies, are doubling down on the mocktail market, healthful alternative, Uh, So, for instance, um, sales of these zero-alcohol drinks used to be kind of a blip, but now there are hundreds of brands. Katy Perry just came out with a new line of alcohol-free aperitifs. Uh, Heineken has a sponsorship with Formula One to promote Heineken 0.0. Now, I'm not much of a drinker, so I'm not, you know, the best expert on this, but my first thought is kind of like, what's the point? (laughs) You know, if you're going to drink something that kind of tastes like a beer, wine, cocktail, and not get a little bit tipsy, why not just drink something else? But I guess it's like social drinking. I don't know. Maybe you all can figure it out better than I can. Uh, A lot going on in the UK. Uh, Boris Johnson, they keep coming up with new parties that he attended while the rest of the country was locked down uh, at 10 Downing Street. And his job seems to be in jeopardy. I don't know how serious it is, but if he loses... uh, his job as prime minister because he partied too much. It would be very fitting given the life of Bojo. Meanwhile, Prince Andrew uh, is heading for a U.S. trial, a civil trial, that is, uh, in this case growing out of the Jeffrey Epstein investigation in which Virginia Jufri accused the prince, the uh, the Duke of York, I should say, uh, of sexually assaulting her when she was very young. He has always denied this. Uh, But now the queen has stripped him of his royal titles. He can't use them in any capacity. Um, The Buckingham Palace said that uh, the Duke of York's military affiliations and royal patronages have been returned to the queen. I guess that's how the phrasing goes. The Duke of York will continue not to undertake any public duties and is defending this case as a private citizen. And apparently... Prince Harry and Prince Charles lobbied behind the scenes to have this happen. Look, this hasn't been a great couple of decades for the royal family. Uh, You know, and the whole Harry and Meghan business obviously became a worldwide spectacle. And now this. All right, as I said, I got a lot of really um, deep, I mean, really seriously deep stuff to share with you on this podcast. So let's get into story number one. And that is... This stunning charge by the Justice Department against the head of the Oath Keepers, a guy named Stuart Rhodes, has been charged with seditious conspiracy in a plot to storm the Capitol on January 6th. Now, this is 
uh, order of magnitude. You know, a lot of the other cases brought by DOJ have been for assault or for conspiracy or for, you know, unlawful trespassing and that kind of thing. And critics, and particularly the anti-Trump crowd, have been saying, why don't they charge somebody with trying to overthrow the government? And I assume the answer until now was that the Justice Department didn't have enough evidence. But now with these Oath Keepers, it, I got to say right up front, this looks to be a difficult case to prove, and here's why. Stuart Rhodes, who's, by the way, been giving interviews over the past year, a couple of TV interviews. He's talked to the Washington Post. He's talked to the New York Times. He said he is innocent. He has said that he was in touch with uh, his fellow Oath Keepers. About uh, 10 or 11 of them were also brought up on this sedition charge. Uh, because he wanted to keep them out of trouble. And he had this story about they were there to protect conservative celebrities like Roger Stone. I don't know if that rings true. Uh, but he also said that some of them went totally off mission. So the thing about Stuart Rhodes is he never actually went into the Capitol. But, you know, if they can prove that he was the mastermind and was telling other people to do it and this was organized, that would be the challenge. Uh, there hasn't been a seditious charge brought in the United States for 12 years. The last one was uh, in the Obama administration and it did not succeed. So there's a reason that sedition, you know, which is essentially defined as a form of treason, a plot to overthrow the government, is so rarely charged, which is there isn't that much sedition and it's hard to prove. So according to uh, the indictment, and this guy was arrested by the FBI, uh, by the way, Rhodes is a former army paratrooper. He, he has a, a law degree from Yale. Uh, so he is not some dummy. Uh, you know, he's got the background. Um, and um, he was at the Capitol, as I said, commuting by cell phone and a chat app with members of his team who did go into the Capitol. Now, they go into the, his communications uh, in the past. So, for example, on Election Day, according to um, a letter, I think, from the January, unearthed by the January 6th committee or, or their own take on this, Rhodes said that an honest count of the votes could only result in a victory for Donald Trump and called on members of his group to, quote, stock up on ammo and prepare for, quote, a full-on war in the streets. Well, that's pretty tough stuff. Does it mean, you know, was it just rhetoric? You know, don't you have to prove that they actually did this? Um, around the same time, according to federal prosecutors, Rhodes urged his fellow Oath Keepers at an online meeting to support Trump calling him the duly elected president. And he said, and here's another damning quote, you can call it an insurrection or you can call it a war or fight. Um, Rhodes appeared at a pro-Trump rally here in D.C., December of 2020, and he urged Trump to invoke the Insurrection Act, saying that a failure to do that would result in a, quote, much more bloody war. So clearly, you know, the head of the Oath Keepers used pretty violent rhetoric, the language of war, full-on war in the streets, stock up on ammo. But I think in order for the prosecution to be successful here, you know, it will have to prove that this translated into the actual events, maybe on January 5th and January 6th, where armed members of the Oath Keepers went in and there was an organized conspiracy that they weren't just going off mission, as Rhodes says, that they were acting, uh, they were not acting on their own, that this was an actual plot. Um, that should be fascinating. Now, 
I don't know whether Merrick Garland's Justice Department was feeling pressure to bring this kind of charge. On the other hand, it's obviously based on many months of investigation and tracking the communications of the head of the Oath Keepers. So it will be a a fascinating test, uh, legal and otherwise. And this really is the only, I mean, I know there's also the Proud Boys, but this might be the only case among the 725 plus cases brought against people, you know, for all kinds of things. Disorderly conduct, trespassing, assault, where actually federal prosecutors are trying to prove there was an organized plot to overthrow the government, to stop the Electoral College certification of Joe Biden, and to, you know, what critics would call a coup to keep Donald Trump in office. Then you get to, well, how much did Donald Trump contribute to that? And we'll get to a little bit more of that in a second. So I talked yesterday on the podcast about Kevin McCarthy will not voluntarily cooperate with requests from the January 6th committee. He held a pretty, he came out swinging at a news conference yesterday and said this was all partisan and Nancy Pelosi was orchestrating this and the committee wasn't so partisan. Remember, his own Republican members got knocked off. She put in Liz Cheney, who, by the way, is accusing McCarthy of a cover-up, and Adam Kingsinger, he pulled his remaining uh, members. So basically, you know, it's a totally anti-Trump committee, mostly populated by Democrats. So he's saying if the committee had acted differently, maybe he'd cooperate. And, you know, everybody on TV has replayed footage of McCarthy being asked a question by a reporter, I believe it's last May, uh, would you cooperate with an independent committee uh, investigation? He said, yeah, sure. And now he has a different view and obviously uh, strongly influenced in that view by his meetings with and communications with one former president of the United States, which leads to a Washington Post editorial. A really stinging editorial, given the tenor of that page, saying subpoenaing the minority leader, which obviously would be the best, the next step, would be unprecedented, but his behavior amounts to a dereliction of his oath to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. In his quest to become the next GOP House Speaker, which, by the way, is pretty likely, McCarthy has instead thrown in his lot with the enemies of democracy. Now, this is not some fiery liberal op-ed. This is not even the New York Times, more liberal pages. The Washington Post saying Kevin McCarthy is siding with the enemies of democracy. That gives you an idea of how heated the rhetoric has gotten and how much of a showdown this really is. Uh, you know, there are poll numbers showing a growing number of Americans uh, just want to move on from January 6th, but sort of a bare majority still says it's a day we should never forget. Uh, it's very clear that neither the Biden Justice Department nor the House January 6th Committee is going to let us forget this for the next year. Uh, and it's very clear that the media, you know, which... Um, play up every single procedural move every time there's a request for new information uh, are going to keep this front and center. And look, I think the Oath Keepers indictment and the defiance by the House Minority Leader are really big stories. This is not, you know, oh, a new subpoena has been issued for somebody you never heard of. And by the way, they've now subpoenaed uh, the big tech companies, the parent companies of Google, Facebook, 
Twitter, I believe. So there's another front here in this war. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Let's move on to number two. Peggy Noonan in the Wall Street Journal. You know, who was a Ronald Reagan speechwriter, a George H.W. Bush speechwriter. So a conservative, but one who couldn't stand Donald Trump and has been largely sympathetic, I would say, to Joe Biden. Really lets the president have it in this Wall Street Journal column. She says, talking about Biden's speech in Atlanta Tuesday, the one where he, you know, visited uh, the crypt of Martin Luther King, the one where he went to the Ebenezer Baptist Church and where he had all that rhetoric on, are you on the side of George Wallace? Are you on the side of Bull Connor? And she says the following, that was a disaster for him. Noonan says, by the end of uh, Mitch McConnell's answering speech, you knew that some new breakpoint had occurred, that President Biden might have thought he was just crooning to part of his base, but the repercussions were greater than that, she says. He was breaking in some new way with others and didn't know it. It's poor political practice when you fail to guess the effects of your actions. He meant to mollify an important constituency, but instead filled his opponents with honest indignation, and I suspect encouraged in that fractured group some new unity. The speech by itself, says Peggy, was aggressive, intemperate, not only offensive, but meant to offend. It seemed prepared by people who think there was only the Democratic Party in America. It was a red meat-based speech. I have to acknowledge that because of the implication. I'll let Peggy say it. Everyone else is an outsider who can be disparaged. It was a mistake on so many levels. Presidents, more than others in politics, have to maintain an even strain. If a president is rhetorically manipulative and divisive on a voting rights bill, it undercuts what he's trying to establish the next day on COVID and the economy. The -the over-the-top language of the speech made him seem more emotional, less competent. The portentousness in our lives and the life of the nation, there are moments so stark that they can divide all that came before them from everything else that followed. They stopped time. Made him appear incapable of understanding how the majority of Americans understand our own nation's history. So, um, it's not good. And I have to add that, you know, Kirsten Cinema basically utterly embarrassed the president of her own party. You know, here's Biden going up the hill to meet with the Senate Democrats. He gives this fiery speech in Atlanta. You're on the side of George Wallace. You're on the side of Bull Connor, or you can be on the side of democracy. And yet he knows he only has 48 votes out of 50 to change the filibuster, modify it, carve out whatever you want to use, to get the voting rights bills, the Democratic voting rights bills, through the 50-50 Senate. And he doesn't have any commitment from Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema to do that. And so... An hour or so before he's going up to the Hill, the president's going to the Hill to meet the senators. She takes the floor and says, you know, oh, I really care about voting rights, but I'm not changing the filibuster. I believe that that's that's the, that's the disease. And this um, the voting rights bills are the symptoms of the disease, but changing the filibuster, that would really just, you know, completely break down any uh, cooperation in the United States Senate, so forth and so on. So she did it in a way that called the most attention to herself. She embarrassed her president. He looks weak. And why did he do it? Here's Axios saying that since Biden uh, signed that uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill into law a couple months ago, he's had this incredible losing streak. He's bombed big time. 
He's never been less popular nationally. He lobbies his own party on Build Back Better Voting Rights and fails. Uh, the COVID messaging is so uh, confused right now that former Biden advisors staged a media intervention going public with a call for a less reactive strategy. He's losing on the two big fights of his choosing with his party controlling both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue. It's rare for a president to be at odds with Republicans, moderate Democrats, and liberal Democrats all at once. That's quite a hat trick. But that's where Biden finds himself at the start of an election year that many Democrats believe will result in the loss of the House and maybe the Senate. Remember, the Senate just has to flip by one seat uh, for McConnell to again, at least if Lindsey Graham doesn't block him, to again become the majority leader. All right, number three, let's get to this Djokovic joke, this international incident. So there's news on that front. The number one men's tennis player in the world had his visa revoked for a second time by the Australian government and was set to be detained again tomorrow going back to that hotel. Remember, the Australian Open, one of the Grand Slam tournaments, starts on Monday. And, you know, up until a few days ago, I mean, I thought Djokovic behaved abominably by seeking a medical exemption, by not leveling with the world that he refused to get vaccinated, but none of this would have happened if he had just gotten the shot. It's his choice, but given his career and how badly he wants to win um, the Australian Open for, I think, the 10th time and then to add to his 20 Grand Slam titles, maybe he should have thought this through, okay? So, but I was sort of at the point where, okay, he appealed to the court, the court ruled in his favor, and just let the guy play, you know? I mean, it's good for tennis, it's good for the Australian Open, but it is such a political issue now uh, in Australia where... Prime Minister Scott Morrison is running for re-election and has decided he's going to take a stand on this. And my further thought was, well, what is the point of going to the courts and getting a favorable ruling if the government can just come back and it doesn't really have to give a reason to say, uh, sorry, we don't think so. We're revoking your visa again and we want you out. He's on the verge of deportation. All you have to show is that uh, the Australian Immigration Minister said that he was doing this uh, in the interests of health and good order. Okay. But I completely lost sympathy for Djokovic, any shred that I had. When you think about it, this was, of course, cited in the government's decision. The way in which he lied on his travel documents, he got COVID. We didn't know that originally. He got COVID last month, and he said he didn't travel for 14 days. But that's BS. He traveled between Serbia and Spain. He traveled around Serbia. He had an interview with a journalist and a photo shoot, all while he was contagious with COVID-19. So you can understand why the Australian government, and by the way, in that country, there is a huge Omicron surge. Uh, there's, it's just um, the numbers have gone absolutely through the roof. So politically speaking, a lot of people in that country are saying, well, well how come this guy doesn't have to play by the rules? And we all do. Uh, now, in reality, this is the politics of symbolism. Um, in other words, whether or not Djokovic plays in the match or not, it's not like he's going to infect 20 more people. I suppose if he's not social distancing, he might. You know, he doesn't have it now. He had COVID recently, so he's probably not going to affect anybody. But, you know, when you're a world-famous multi-million dollar tennis star, symbolism matters. I mean, in a way, you don't get to play by a different set of rules, but you also can't sort of slide by without anybody paying attention. 
So he goes on his, you know, social media and says, uh, well, you know, I just want to have the opportunity to compete against the best players in the world, uh, perform before one of the best crowds in the world. He says, you know, mistakes were made. My agent filled out the travel forms. Come on. You're a grown-up. You're a professional athlete. you got to take responsibility for your own actions here. He has apologized. But he only apologized when he was sort of forced to reveal all the facts. Still hasn't talked to the press. I just think he kind of deserves it. It looks like he's not going to play, and I am not going to lose any sleep about that. This is a guy who repeatedly screwed this up. Unforced errors, as they say in tennis, a whole bunch of unforced errors. All right, number four, and this is a very big deal, uh, the Supreme Court ruling yesterday on the Biden vaccination mandates. I guess you could say it was a split decision in the following manner. Uh, the high court ruled, uh, you know, with the usual conservative majority, that on the bigger of the two cases, which is the Biden administration saying it had the power to force uh, private businesses over a certain size to in turn force their employees to get vaccinated, um, the Supreme Court says the Biden administration can't do that. It went too far. This is all about, because this, the court has allowed this at the state level, it's all about what is the authority of the federal government. And are there uh, laws in Congress that give the executive branch uh, the power uh, to impose this kind of sweeping mandate on private businesses? But the other case, which affected fewer people, had to do with um, it's, the Biden administration won that one. And it had to do with whether healthcare workers could be required to be vaccinated at federally funded facilities, those getting Medicare or Medicaid funds. And in that case, Brett Kavanaugh joined John Roberts and the court's three liberals to say that the Secretary of HHS does have the authority to do that uh, because these are federally funded facilities. The other one, the private businesses uh, where OSHA would come and do the inspections, that would have applied to about 84 million people. The healthcare workers, about 10 million people. But the abuse that Brett Kavanaugh is taking online for voting at what conservatives would see as the wrong way in one of these two cases, you know, people are bringing up um, the Christine Blasey Ford accusations and saying, I mean, just awful stuff, you know, uh, that Kavanaugh raped the Constitution. They don't agree, okay? He went one way and he went the other way. You know, it's not the job of the Supreme Court justice, whether appointed by Trump, Obama, Bush, you name it, Clinton, um, to always ver vote with the way uh, that the president who appointed him or her would like. Now, Donald Trump, after this ruling, said he was proud of the Supreme Court because he liked the ruling. When the Supreme Court refused to uh, back him up or hear the cases when he was challenging the electoral results, he said the Supreme Court should be ashamed of themselves. So like lots of lots of other people in politics, you know, Trump likes the court when it goes his way, then they're a brilliant statesman, and he doesn't like the court when it doesn't go his way. National Review is calling this a victory for the separation of powers. A uh, hundred or more employees you, know, you have to have in a business to uh, fall under the what the Biden administration wanted to do. And Biden put out a statement, or maybe he talked to reporters saying, uh, you know, I'm very disappointed in this, but I will still use my voice to try to urge corporations to voluntarily uh, adopt uh, their own vaccine rules, as some have. Um, and so National Review says that, uh, quoting from the piece, 
uh, excuse me, quoting from the ruling, the justice says, permitting OSHA to regulate the hazards of daily life simply because most Americans have jobs and face those same risks while on the clock would significantly expand OSHA's regulatory authority without clear congressional authorization. So Congress could pass a law tomorrow, I don't think it's inclined to do so, saying, okay, we're giving OSHA this power. Um, and it's a classic separation of powers case, which is there have to be some limits on what the executive branch can do, particularly when it comes to regulating private business. Now, if it's a, if it's a kind of a workplace safety business or matter that directly comes under OSHA's mission, well, then, I, you know, it's like the FDA or the FAA, any other regulatory body. You know, sometimes they go too far, they exceed their authority, but generally the courts have upheld the rights of these regulatory agencies to take action against private business. But when you stretch it so far, you know, what the court is saying is, yeah, look, we know that this is life and death, that some people may die, but you're not facing any more risks by sitting in an office than you are when you're home, when you're at the grocery store, when you're living your daily life. Therefore, it's so broad that OSHA doesn't have the power to do this. Uh, a lot of uh, people on the left, uh, castigating the Supreme Court, and a lot of others are taking a different view. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Which leads me into number five, which is also about COVID. Michelle Goldberg, the very liberal columnist, for the New York Times, has written uh, a piece that surprised me. And you know, I know Michelle a little bit, and it really touched a, a nerve with me because so many families are going through this. You know, whether you like her political views or not, here's what she says. My nine-year-old son tested positive on Tuesday morning after waking up complaining of a slight sore throat. Um, I felt a, kind, a strange kind of resigned calm. The effort to avoid COVID has to varying degrees dominated our lives for almost two years. And I figured, oh, I could let it go. You know, some health authorities say you, you should mask your infected kids while at home. I never crossed my mind. I assume given Omicron's extreme infectiousness, we'd all have it soon enough. Uh, I kept my daughter home from school, but she tested negative, but it seemed like the responsible thing to do. So she says she's in this limbo. Son has it. Daughter doesn't have it. She figures it's inevitable. She'll get it and her husband will get it. But what Michelle Goldberg says is, while I'm surprised the rest of my family doesn't have it yet, we could easily have it soon. She's dreading quarantine. She hadn't considered the worst possibility of rolling quarantines. I just want to get it over with. And that leads to this. And she knows a lot of families where some people have gotten it, some people haven't gotten it. In other words, Omicron is incredibly transmissible, but it's not guaranteed that every family member gets it. After 22 months of this pandemic, I'm psychologically flailing. This is a very candid and telling admission. At this point, a few weeks of even a bad flu seems preferable to the perpetual anxiety and decision fatigue of this low moment, to reflexively thinking of other people as viral vectors. Maybe it's easy for me to say now, but a discrete period of sickness, if the odds are in my favor and I don't get long COVID, seems easier to endure than a protracted and probably futile struggle to evade sickness. Put simply, I can't take it anymore. I'm ready to surrender. And let me just stop there. I wonder how many people and families, parents feel that way. You know, after two years, we've done everything. The masks, the vaccinations in many cases, the booster shots, social distancing, not going to events, not seeing family, uh, particularly in 2020. And I think people are just so sick of it that some are saying, let me get it, let me get it over with. Anyway, she concludes the virus doesn't care. Um, 
This interregnum, waiting to see whether the rest of my family is going to get sick or not, is a reminder of how little control we really have. Right now, I feel good. It's terrible. So part of her wants to get it over with. Part of her thinks it's not such a good idea. And by the way, she says, look, I'm privileged. You know, we make plenty of money. My husband and I both have um, flexible jobs so we can stay home when a child is sick. There's a piece in the Atlantic that is a kind of looking at the other side of this, people who don't have such privileged jobs. It starts out with a hotel front desk clerk in a red state. And um, the Atlantic piece says he doesn't want to be identified because he doesn't want to get fired. He doesn't have paid sick days or health insurance. About a month ago, he got COVID. He took four days off using three of his seven vacation days and going a day without pay. Last week, one of his kids tested positive for COVID, and he thinks he has it again. But when he tried to get tested, the earliest appointment was in a few days. So with a headache, a sore throat, and a runny nose, he went to work anyway. Uh, If I need to pay rent and buy food, I got to go to work, he said. I was feeling pretty bad earlier, but it's like, well, I could just take some DayQuil. And she goes on to, uh, Olga Kazan, who wrote this piece, goes on to say, he wears a mask. He tries to be careful. He's worried about infecting other workers and guests. But sometimes it feels pointless because some hotel guests have walked in maskless, announced they have COVID, and later summon hotel staff to the room for fresh towels. So the larger point here is, however long you can uh, isolate or quarantine yourself, realistically, Many Americans were never able to take the full 10 days that had been recommended by the CDC um, because they don't have sick leave. They have jobs they need to put food on the table. Federal government offers no services or payments to people for isolation. In other words, they just aren't in a life situation where they can take any time off of work, whether it's five days, 10 days, or any days without uh, financially ruinous impact. Uh, now, how many people are we talking about? Atlantic says about one-fifth of all U.S. workers don't get paid sick leave, and the lowest-paid workers, those who serve the food, clean the hotels, stock the groceries, are the least likely to have paid sick leave. Fourteen states and Washington, D.C., plus about two dozen cities and counties have paid sick day laws, but about 75 million private sector workers uh, who don't live in those jurisdictions uh, are not covered. And so it's just it's good to stop and think about the people that we see and interact with every day um, who, who are most at risk because they're, they're, they may be wearing a mask and they may be taking precautions, but, you know, they're the people at the cash register. They're the people at the front desk in the hotel. So on the one hand, you have, you know, journalists and New York Times columnists who are, this is driving them crazy, but at least, you know, they have health insurance, they can take days off without any great impact. They're, they, they're in a comfortable spot. Uh, even taking time off to get vaccinated or boosted is not a big challenge for them. If you're in one of those service industries and you don't have paid sick leave and you get it or you're worried about getting it, it's a very, very different situation. I think those of us in the news business have to keep that in mind when we talk about this whole issue that so many of us are so tired of. Well, I hope you're heading for a great weekend. I'll just remind you again that Media Buzz airs at 11 Eastern on Fox. Um, Very excited about the show this week. Hope you have good plans. Hope you stay safe. Be nice if you would subscribe. We'll see you on Monday with more Buzz.
Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.